Father, pray that you'd speak to us now. Pray that you would help us to see how how great your word is, how great your truth is, that we're saved by grace, that we're justified, this big word, on account of what you've done, not what we've done. Just pray that that would sink deeply into us, into our souls, into our thinking, into our attitudes this morning, and really shape and change us in the way that we see you and the way that we act. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got to get close to you do that. Can you get the screen? That's awesome. The screen wasn't there when I was, when I was here. Does this work? Turn it off first. Beautiful. All right. Try that. You answer that. <laughs> well, who likes rock climbing? Does anyone like rock climbing? You saw some mountains just there. Anyone don't like rock climbing? Matt likes rock climbing. All right. Anyone else? Steve likes rock climbing. Let's see the mountains. Well, um, if you've seen them uh, already. I don't like rock climbing. Uh, I've got some mates in college who love rock climbing. They love abseiling and rock climbing. And, uh, they think a good Friday night out is to go for a rock climb. I think that's crazy because Friday night out, a good Friday night out is not a good Friday night out. It's a good Friday night in when you're chilling out, not rock climbing, climbing rocks. I'd be petrified to do that. Once I went abseiling, I think abseiling is probably the worst of the lot. They, they, they do bouldering. Have you heard of bouldering? No? Bouldering, I think, is tough man rock climbing. You just kind of run up boulders and jump over them without ropes. Um, I don't think it's as big as rock climbing. But one time I went abseiling, I think abseiling is probably the worst of the three. You're going backwards down a cliff, right? It's kind of stupid. Um, I think. But just imagine, so he gives me a giraffe, nervous giraffe, stuck in the cliff, petrified. I can't do heights, and I don't like abseiling. I don't mind roller coasters, but not rock climbing, not abseiling. But I, I'm probably, when you look at a picture like that, and you guys can see behind me, I think we're probably missing out on something. We're not doing rock climbing. There's something about mountains, when we look at that, I think that's the Himalayas. There's something about mountains that are rugged and beautiful, isn't it? There's something awe-inspiring about mountains. They're hard to climb, but they're amazing at the same time. Now, if the Bible was a mountain range, then Romans would be the Himalayas. And if Romans is the Himalayas, then this passage we're looking at is Mount Everest. It's a big, big passage. And so today we're going to go on a journey to Mount Everest, the summit, the peak of the whole Bible. That's the claim. That's what I'm saying to you this morning. And the question is, why is this passage so important? I want you guys to be asking that as we think about this. And keep your Bibles open as we answer it. Why is this passage so important? Well, sometimes life is a bit like that picture, a mountain range. Sometimes, you know, we've got ups and downs through life. Life, we have lots of questions that we have to answer, which are like mountains. Marriage, relationships, family. Where am I going to work? Who am I going to marry? Is this relationship a good one? What about my future? What about my past? What do I do about education, my kids? These are, this is what life is made of, a mountain range. Questions that we have to overcome. Now, what I want to say to you is that the reason this is the Mount Everest of the Bible is because it answers the Mount Everest question in life. And that question is this. How do guilty sinners... Oh, maybe not. All right, there's a little mountain. Just imagine it says this. How do guilty sinners get right with a righteous God? That's the question. How do guilty sinners get right with a just God? That's our question. The Mount Everest for questions. Don't worry about the slides. 
It's coming up here. There's three parts I want to say. How do guilty sinners get right with the righteous God? We're justified. We're made right by His grace to forgive. Our justification isn't cheap, and we further we receive it through faith. It's the colour. We receive it through faith. First, first point: justification is a free gift. So you guys have been looking at Romans, right? Been good vibes. We've been looking at Romans for the last few weeks. And you're probably sick of hearing what's been the last three or four weeks. It's been you and I, Jew and Gentile, all of us, we're guilty of sin and we're stuffed. We can't save ourselves. We're in trouble with God. We're doomed. And I think that's been the message. When I read Romans, that's the message up until now. Um, and I think that's what you guys have kind of been hitting again and again. And it's, you know, it's not a great message to keep hearing. We can't do it. We can't do it. There's no way... There's no way, you've heard it again and again, no matter religion, no matter good deeds, no matter sacrifice, no amount of anything can make you right with God. Now, that's a scary thought. That's a terrifying thought. And then along comes Roman, Romans 3.21, after 3.20, which says this, But now, but now, something's changed. Something, is, something different, something new is happening. These two words change everything. Something radically, radically new is taking place. And these two words, they're kind of like the hinge. There's a big door between us and God, and it's slammed shut. And but now, this door starts to open. These are the, the two words that hinge this door that starts to creak open. And just to show you how significant this passage is, I want to just uh, show you what a few people in history have said about it. Martin Luther, you might know, uh, have heard of, last year was the 500th uh, celebration of the Reformation anyway. Martin Luther, he said this 500 years ago. He says that this, these verses here are the chief point of the whole Bible. That's a huge claim. Martin Lloyd-Jones, just uh, last century, an English preacher said that these verses are the Acropolis, that's that giant Greek monument, uh, of the whole Bible and of the whole Christian faith. Pretty important stuff. American pastor John Piper, he, he's still alive. Um, he said, there's great sentences in the Bible, great paragraphs, great revelations, but it doesn't get any greater. It doesn't get any greater than this right now. It's pretty big stuff. It's pretty important stuff. We've got to get it right. But so let's have a, uh, keep looking at it. So keep your Bibles open. Verse 21. But now, apart from law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is, God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. He's saying there's a way, there is a way, there is a way that human beings can be right with God. And it's not about the law, it's not about religion or living a certain way, anything you can do. Those things aren't enough. So the, the idea that we're thinking about, it's justification or righteousness and they're legal words. The words that belong in a kind of a legal court, courtroom context. Um, and verse 21 is saying that you can't do it. In the courtroom of God, you can't be made right yourself. You can't. You can't be acceptable to God. It's nothing that you can do. That's what righteousness is. But right here it's saying, verse 21, that God gives us His righteousness. What you can't do, God gives to you. He declares you to be what you are not. That's the great news of this verse. God declares you to be what you are not. 
righteous. Now that's amazing. That's unfathomable grace, isn't it? That's the gospel. Guilty sinners declared right. And it's not just that we're not seen negatively anymore because of our sin. We're actually given a positive approval. Uh, one, one guy, old theologian, Marcus Sloan, described it, the difference between forgiveness and justification like this. He said, The voice which spells forgiveness will say, You may go. You've been let off. Your penalty for which your sin deserves is gone. But the verdict that spells justification, which is what we're thinking about, will say, You may come. You're welcome. Welcome to my love, to my presence. See, it's more than just a negative being taken away. It's a positive. We've been given this positive declaration before God. And the passage keeps going. It says, it's attested by the law and the prophets. You see there? That is, it's just saying that this is what the whole Bible points to. The whole Bible says this. There's not like an Old Testament way to be saved and then a New Testament way to be saved. Actually, the whole Bible points to this moment in Jesus where sin is paid for, where we are justified, made right before God. It's the whole, all of you know, Israel's history, they look forward to this Messiah, this moment. For all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely, that's the first point, freely by His grace. God justifies sinners freely. It's a free gift. I want to share with you some words from a couple of guys that you've probably heard of. Um, and one of them really gets this, right? This point that we're saying, free, free grace. Um, and the first guy is not that little mountain. It's this guy. Who's that? Anyone know? Yeah. Lance Armstrong. All right. So Lance Armstrong wrote, do we know his story a little bit? Cyclist, found, yeah, had cancer, pretty famous, one heaps of stuff, found to, out to be cheating from pretty much all his, uh, all his victories. But he wrote this before he found out, um, uh, found out it was cheating. So he says this in his book. The night before brain surgery, I thought about death. I searched out my larger values and I asked myself, if I was going to die, was I content with what I had done with my life so far? I decided that I was essentially a good person. I asked myself what I believed. I'd never prayed a lot. I'd hoped hard. I'd wished hard, but I didn't pray. Quite simply... I believed I had the responsibility to be a good person. And that meant fair, honest, hardworking, and honourable. If I did that, if I was good to my family, true to my friends, if I gave back to my community or to some cause, if I wasn't a liar, a cheat, a thief, then I believed that should be enough. So what's Lance trusting in his justification for? It's himself, isn't it? In the courtroom of God, Lance is hoping that he's done enough. He thinks he's decided, well, I'm a good person. Now compare that with this man. I don't you know, agree with everything he says, but this is Bono from YouTube, and he says this in an interview. Bono says, The thing that keeps me on my knees is the difference between grace and karma. You see, the center of all religions is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, or in physics and physical laws, every action met with an equal and opposite reaction. It's clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm sure of it. Yet along comes this idea called grace, and it upends all that you, what you read, you sow stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. And he says, which in my case is very good news, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. The interviewer gets excited. He says, oh, I did 
interested to hear about that. <laughs> Bonner says, well, that's between me and God. But I'd be in big trouble if karma was going to be my judge. And it doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sin on the cross because I know who I am. And I hope I don't have to depend on my religiosity. You see, while Lance is trusting, well, he's, he said, I decided I was a good guy. I was essentially a good person. Bono gets it. He gets that he isn't. He's got absolutely nothing to offer. He says, I'm holding out for grace. So how do sinners get right with the holy God? It's this, it's verse 24. It's grace. It's grace. Now the question is, have you realized this? Have you realized that it's grace? Maybe you've been a Christian for a while, and that's that's my situation. Maybe that's you as well. Maybe you've started to forget that it's grace. You stand before God on account of His grace to you. Maybe we start to merge that we're justified with our Christian living. We start to merge those two things. The fact that we're, you know, you're a Christian, a committed Christian, wanting to serve God, wanting to live for Him. And maybe that started to, to kind of come into how you see yourself before God. What gives you confidence before God? It's got to be what he's done alone. Nothing to do with what you do in your life. You're justified freely by nothing you've done, nothing you can contribute to at all. You can't do anything. It's completely separate from you. That's what this verse is saying. Maybe you're here and you're a skeptic. You're like, man, nothing is free in life. We know that, right? Nothing is free. And normally you're right, absolutely. But this is, this is God's grace and it is free. And, you know, that is a terrible business strategy. You go into business, don't give away your product freely, you're not going to make any money. But it's the only justification strategy. It's the only way that we can be right with God if he gives it to us freely. So I said before, this is, uh, it's all kind of legal language, justification. It's kind of this image of a courtroom. And in a courtroom, what happens? The guilty come in and they get punished. And the innocent are proven innocent. They get set free. But that's not what's happening here. And that's the scandal of grace. Because we expect justice. We expect justice in our world. And God is not treating us justly. He's giving us what we don't deserve. That's why grace is shocking. That's not justice to us. But it's what grace does. And it's amazing. And now the obvious question is, if God can... Give us what we don't deserve. If he justifies the guilty, how is he still just? You ask that question. That brings us to our second point. So although our justification is free, it comes at a great, great cost. It comes at a great cost. Keep looking at the passage as I read out, verse 24 again. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, there's two big words that come up here. I want to explain them both. Our first one briefly. And the first one is redemption. And it's kind of a key idea for understanding justification. Now, in ancient times, um, if you owed someone heaps of money uh, and you couldn't pay it back, um, then there was no bankruptcy law that would protect you. If you owed heaps, someone heaps of money, then you'd lose everything. You'd lose your stuff. You'd lose your house. You'd lose your land. And then you'd lose your freedom. Uh, you'd actually become a slave. You'd have to work for that person until you could pay off uh, and buy back your freedom. 
And often you never could. Often you could never buy back your freedom. You became their slave. You became their property. The slaves could be bought and sold. And this idea of redemption was the price that needed to be paid to buy you back, to buy you out of your slavery into freedom. That's a redemption price. And Paul says, at the heart of our message, the Christian message, the gospel, is that a price is paid, a transaction where the guilty, the sinners, are paid for, are set free from sin, from their slavery, purchased in Jesus. That's that first idea. And then Paul explains how this redemption in verse 25 is paid. He says, God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Propitiation. We use that word all the time, don't we? Propitiating this, propitiating that. Um, but what, is it, what does it actually mean? Um, it's a strange word. Uh, but think of, it like, think of it like a helmet. Put a helmet on. And what does a helmet do? It's there to absorb the impact if you fall. A helmet propitiates, it pacifies the wrath of the ground, the impact of the ground. It stands between your head and the concrete. If you're riding a bike, you stack it. The helmet's there to propitiate. This verse said that verse says that God presented him, that's Jesus, as a propitiation through faith in his blood. That is, Jesus, God's son, takes on the wrath of the Father, the payment for sin. That's what Jesus does. This idea we've got that, that God is wrathful and that a blood sacrifice of his son is required. It's really, it's not a popular idea at all. Um, I don't know if you've come across that uh, opposition or, or uneasiness to this idea, but it's out there. And um, atheists love to point at it. People heard of Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, yeah, we've heard of him maybe. Yeah, he's a pretty popular atheist at the moment. Um, he hates this idea. This is what he says. He says, you're telling me, can you have to read that ish a little bit? Yeah. You're telling me the creator of the universe couldn't think of a better way to rid the world of sin than to come to this little speck of cosmic dust, that's us in the world, and have himself tortured and executed so that he could forgive himself? It's petty. He goes on, if God wants to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them? Does he have a point? If one of my sons does something wrong, I don't have to go and hurt the other one to forgive him. Interesting. But it's not just atheists, right? Some supposedly Christian writers and Christian thinkers are saying this stuff as well. We've got to be aware of it. Um, has anyone heard of this book, The Shack? There was a movie recently as well, uh, last year. It's a really famous book by um, uh, a man named William Paul Young. And it sold 20 million, 20 million copies, pretty influential. In an interview about Jesus' death, uh, he says this. The interviewer says, So do you believe that Christ was punished then for our sin? And Young says, Well, I believe that Christ became sin for us. So he's saying he identified with our sin, but not punished. The interviewer said, I mean that he was a sacrifice, that he was punished, that he took. And Young says, Ah, uh, by who? The interviewer by the Father. And Young says, why, why would the Father punish his son? So it's not just atheists have a problem with this. Here's my final one. Uh, some of you might have heard he's, he's a musician, Christian musician, Michael Gungor. He tweeted this last year. He says, if you can't think of anything to sing about, sing to God about other than gratitude, for taking your shame away through bloodshed, 
Then stop singing. Singing. Stop singing as well. Stop singing and look around. What is he saying? He's saying, why are we always singing about the blood of Jesus? Are there better things to think, sing about? They're all these voices. They have serious problems with what verse 25 in front of you is saying. And what I'm saying to you is actually what verse 25 is saying is the most important idea in the whole Bible. We take away that, we've lost everything. Propitiation, the wrath of God being turned away, is so important. I want you to imagine, imagine this situation. A real, a real criminal being brought into the courtroom. Someone who's committed serious crime, serious injustice, serial rape, serial murder, abuse, terrible acts. Now, what would we say if the judge said, he's sorry, how about we just forgive him? That's what Dawkins says. Just forgive. They'd be outraged, wouldn't they? They'd be outraged. If a perpetrator came to court and said, hey, I'm sorry, can't you just forgive me? And we all say to society, yeah, okay, we'll forgive you. What message does that communicate to the victims of the crime? What does it say about the victim, victims of evil that have been committed? It says that it doesn't matter. What's happened to you doesn't matter. What's been done to you, the evil, the wrong, your pain doesn't matter if nothing's done about it. And see, none of us, none of us want a judge who just forgives. We don't. That's not justice to us. And plenty of people want to say, I believe in a God of love and not anger. But what does it say to the victims of evil, injustice, crime, when God isn't angry at evil? What does that say? It says your life is worth nothing to him. I think this idea is best expressed by a Christian man named Gary Hagen. Gary Hagen founded the International Justice Mission and he led the United Nations genocide investigation into uh, genocide in Rwanda where uh, in 1904, I think it was, when 800,000 people were butchered, and murdered, and slaughtered. And it was all done in a period of 100 days, three months. And he wrote this about his experience when he, when he returned. He said this about justice. He said, Standing with my boots deep in the reeking mud of a Rwandan mass grave where thousands of innocent people have been horribly slaughtered, I have no words, no meaning, no life, no hope, if there is not a God of history and time who is absolutely furious, absolutely burning with anger towards those who took it in their own hands to commit such acts. See, what is verse 25 saying? For God to be just, he has to have wrath. He has to be angry at sin, at evil. And he paid it with blood. Not my blood, not your blood, but Christ's blood. Let me read it again. Verse 25. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, is Christ the passive victim in all of this? Some want to say he is. But I want to say they're not reading the Bible when they say that. John 10, 18 says, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down on my own accord. On the night before Jesus died, uh, we see this. We see him in the garden of Gethsemane with his friends, and he's in agony. He's in torment. The prospect of bearing 
the wrath of God is just eating at him. And I'll read a little bit from Mark 14. Saying in verse 32, it says, Then they came to a place called Gethsemane. And he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John and took him with him a bit further and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. And then it says, he says to his friends, My soul is overwhelmed to the point of sorrow, with sorrow to the point of death. So he knows what it's before him. He's man, he's fully man, he's fully God. He feels the emotions of a man. And he falls down to his knees and cries out to his father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. See, the cup is God's wrath. Punishment for all sin, not his sin, your sin, my sin. Jesus is staring down death and judgment. All the forces of evil are arrayed against him. And in this moment, he can walk away. He can let go of you, he can let go of me, and he can walk away. But he says to the Father, not my will, but your will. He walks towards the cross, not away from it. See, this is what it took to pay for your sin. So when you want to know if you're loved by God, look at this moment. When Jesus could have walked away, but he didn't. If you're struggling with doubt and uncertainty and assurance... Look to this moment when he could have let you go, let you go to deal with your own sin, but he didn't. If you're struggling to fight sin in your life, you become lazy, complacent, sins become habitual in your life. Look at this moment because until you see the cost of what he paid for, then you won't be able to live and overcome your sin, to live free from it. The cost he paid to redeem you is a great cost. See, Jesus is the willing propitiation for our sin. The Father puts forward the Son and the Son willingly accepts. He says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. This is the payment for sin, the satisfaction of God's wrath. It's the beating heart. I want you to get that. This is the beating heart of the gospel. The Christian message is this. You're justified freely, freely by grace. For that grace came at such a cost, such a cost. Now, can you see how the wrath, the wrath of God and the blood, wrath and blood, and they're both His. They're both His. He pays the cost of your sin. He has to be angry with sin. Otherwise, He isn't just, He isn't good. But He shows His unfathomable love by making the blood that was shed not yours, but His. He steps in and pays it. And that's why in verse 26 says that God can be both righteous and the one who declares us righteous. Sin is punished and we are free. Our guilt has been paid for and that's how we're justified. It's done. That's the message. It's done. Now what, what should our response be to that? It's done. What a great thing that is. My last point, that's a quick one. We receive this justification through faith. That's how we receive it. Verse 28 says this, For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, justification comes to us through faith. And what is faith? It's just receiving. It's receiving this free gift. Receive this free gift. That's it. God's free gift of faith, of 
of His grace. Faith isn't a doing thing, it's a done thing, it's a receiving thing. It's what He's done. One way Jesus described uh, this kind of trust is in Mark 10. He talks of being like a child. He says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you'll never enter it. Now, the obvious question is, what is it? What's he saying? What what is it about children that we need to be like? And he's saying we need to be dependent. We need to be dependent like children. Have you ever taken a child out for lunch? Have you done that, parents? Yeah? Yeah? I took my boys out uh, yesterday for breakfast, and I'll tell you what didn't happen. This this didn't happen, right? There was no discussion of who was paying for it. None at all. They just assumed I'm paying for it. That's what happens. There's not a thought of it, is there? They're totally dependent. They're just totally dependent. They come empty-handed. They offer me nothing. And that's that's how we approach God. That's what faith is. We go empty-handed to God because we offer Him nothing. God has justified us, brought us out of darkness of our sin, so that we can be righteous, so that we can know Him as our Father. He looks on us now with approval, not judgment. He's not looking down as waiting for us to stuff up. He's loving us before we've done anything. It's not based on our goodness. It's based on what he's done. So that's the role of faith in all this. So we're to be like children, empty-handed, trusting completely in the free gift His grace. And Paul just says at the end, he says, faith by its nature prohibits boasting. There's no space for boasting. When you've contributed nothing, you have nothing to boast about. So we've seen this is the summit of the Christian faith, the Christian Christian gospel. The Mount Everest. It's the center. It's what Christianity is all about. And it brings us back to our original question: how do guilty sinners get right with a just God? It's by his free gift. He says to us, You are righteous because my son has paid for it. So come to me and receive it. Receive it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 